We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 this morning. And uh, I'll read it and pray for our time. And again, just ask you to, as always, to listen carefully. This is God's word, and it is a privilege to hear it. Let's read. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just heard never will. May God add a blessing to the hearer. Let's pray. God, it is a great privilege that we take for granted that you would address us through your word. And we pray that you would do that now, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would uh, speak to each heart here that has been created in your image and has been designed to give glory to you, to enjoy you forever. Uh, But Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would have your way in this place because I know that I have nothing of value to say that is not first and foremost from you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you anoint this time? Would you anoint the preaching and proclamation of the word, would you do what you do best and make much of Jesus in our midst that we might make much of Jesus in our world? So now uh, reveal uh, wisdom and knowledge and discernment, all those things that you have for us in this passage. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't normally uh, even title my sermons, And I certainly don't give you a title up front because that usually gives away too much of what I'm trying to say. But for this sermon, as we look at this passage, I'm going to give you the title uh, because it won't give anything away. Uh, But the title I've come up with is Ferraris, the Moon, and Our Joy. Ferraris, the Moon, and Our Joy. You're like, okay. I'm intrigued. And that's the whole point of telling you the the title up front. But uh, we are in this series, we're calling it The the Pursuit of Joy, uh, this little four-chapter letter to a church in Philippi from a guy that planted the church about 10 years before and and has uh, partnered with them, has seen God do miracles in their midst, has seen them grow, has seen house church after house church after house church planted in Philippi so that the church of Philippi has grown, it's matured. Uh, it has some problems and some issues, but Paul uh, is writing as a, a dear friend, uh, as a pastor. And, and as, you, as, as we eavesdrop into this letter, on the one hand, this is a real letter from, from Paul to the church at Philippi, but because the Spirit so empowered him and preserved it, it's a letter that is living and active, and, and God would have something for us as well in this message. 
at its most basic fundamental level, it's a thank you letter. So if, if anyone's ever done something very kind to you, for you, uh, then you write them a thank you letter. And so uh, Jennifer and I, as missionaries, Jennifer really more than me, but uh, as, as we have many people that support us and, and encourage us and send us out and, and help us plant churches and, and encourage church planters across Europe, we often write thank you letters. And this is basically what Paul's doing. We see even from this passage that he's in prison in Rome, and uh, the Roman government wasn't like, there were no prison reforms in the first century uh, Roman world. There were like, uh, that was a cruel place to be. And Rome didn't care if you ate. It didn't care if you lived. I mean, it would be easier if you just died in prison. And so if you were in a Roman prison, it was up to your friends and your family to provide the most basic necessities for you, or you die. And Paul being 15, from 1,500 miles away, now in Rome, has no friends and no family. But some of the churches have heard our brother, our founding pastor, uh, the guy that we owe so much to is in prison. And so they send one of their own. They send Epaphroditus to Rome, and he brings money from them so that he can eat, and he receives it. But as he receives it, uh, he is overflowing with joy. And so uh, he records for us his prayer for them. And and I want to unpack that a little bit, but, but more than anything, I want to see how this has to do with your joy and my joy. See, you and I were created for joy. There's two things that are true of each of us this morning, that all of us are on a path pursuing joy. We said that the first week. No matter what you do, you're pursuing your joy. That's the first thing. But the second thing is also true. We've all gone down wrong paths. We've all believed different lies about if we just go down this road, we'll find joy. And at the end of the road, we don't find joy. So we start over and we start over and we start over. We're all, we were created to pursue joy, but we've all gone down wrong paths. So G.K. Chesterton would say, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. That's what they're looking for. Everything you do, because you were created by God for God, is looking for God. But in a twisted and broken world, we go down wrong paths. If if only this drug would satisfy me. If only this new purchase would satisfy me. And it gives us a little high for a while, but then nothing. And, And Paul is showing us from the beginning that it's because we've thought about joy wrongly. Uh, Jesus would often come and and do what I would call an upside down kingdom thing. He'd say, you want life? You have to give your life away. You want to be first? You have to be last. You want, you want everlasting joy? Take up your cross and follow me. And every time he said something like that, they were like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. But those that did get it, they found joy. We said last week that joy cannot be tied to our circumstances on this side of eternity. Because even as comfortable as we are, as wealthy as we are, there's still brokenness. You're going to get sick. People are going to die. And there's going to be brokenness. And we we say, well, I don't want pain. That that must be the opposite of joy. And Paul, throughout this letter, is going to show pain is not the opposite of joy. Often pain is the path to joy because in our pain, we turn to the person we were created for. So joy and circumstances we saw last week have nothing, uh, almost nothing to do with each other. There's got to be something more. And so Paul begins to pray that for them. First thing we see is Paul is a, a thankful person. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. 
I love that because we have account from Dr. Luke uh, in the book of Acts, Acts 16, of, of when the church started. We talk about it often. Uh, he goes to a Bible study, and God opens the heart of Lydia, and, and she becomes a believer. And then her household, and a church is planted. Uh, the gospel is preached, and people take offense. And Paul gets beaten and thrown into prison and, and put into the stocks. And at midnight, he's praying and praising God. Like, Paul, you almost died in Philippi, but, but when he's in his Roman jail cell, he's like, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, everything. Even when I almost died, I'm just grateful for that experience. Like, Paul, do you have a death wish? Like, what's wrong with you? Why would a painful situation bring you joy? He, he's thankful. He's also persistent. He says, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. So he's persistent. He, and, and as he's in his Roman jail cell, now this becomes an important point for us. He's, he's not only thankful, uh, he's joyful because uh, though the, the shackles of Rome could hold his body, they could not hold his spirit. They could not hold his joy. And so uh, I imagine him locked in shackles, thinking about, and just the guards outside the door saying, this dude is crazy. I mean, he's always praising his God. We have our gods, but we wouldn't praise them if we were there. But that guy is always praying. He's laughing in there like something's wrong with him. He's messed up. He keeps telling us about good news, but uh, he is insane. And, and he's, he's in his jail cell. He's received a gift from the church at Philippi, and he just starts laughing. His joy overflows, and he begins to write this letter, and, and he says, I am full of joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. He thinks about how God worked among them. One of the things I want to show as we look at joy, like last week we saw that uh, out of joy, even in the first few verses, we've got to look at who we are in Christ. We saw three things. We are owned by Christ. By his blood, we were purchased by Christ. He is our master. Uh, we serve him, but he's a good master. And so uh, we, we love him. But more than that, we have been redeemed by Christ. And on the cross, he gave us his righteousness. And we are called saints now, not because we are holy, but because his holiness covers us and we are set apart. So we were, we were, we're slaves of God and we're saints of Christ. And that would be enough to worship forever. But it gets better than that. He also adopted us, we saw last week, and we call God Father. So as we live out of God being our master, as we live out of us being set apart and holy ones, and as we live out of sons and daughters of God, that should fuel our joy. But um, also just this idea of being thankful. Paul is in, in prison. He could have wrote this letter, man. It sucks here. The food is terrible. I'm glad you sent me some money so I can finally do something with, buy, send someone else to buy me some food. Like, he could have grumbled. I probably would have been grumbled. I'm not as sanctified or, as Paul, but I would have been grumbling. But here's the thing we see. Uh, joy is tied to lifting our eyes and taking our eyes off of ourselves. The most miserable people on the planet are focused on themselves. And in an age that is the most narcissistic time on the planet, it's no wonder that we have so many problems. Now, I just want to aside, this is bonus today. I realize every week as I'm, as I'm looking over the scripture and praying for you guys that every one of us has problems. I mean, every one of us has issues. We've got some, some of you have infants and, and that has its own problems. And some of you have financial problems. And some of you ha have job problems and education problems. Some of you have friendship problems. Some of you have marriage problems. Some of you are, are up uh, 
just trying to figure out how to raise your kids. Some, like there are problems in every seat in this room, and, and I recognize that. And you're ho- you, maybe you come here like, oh, I just need to hear from you, Lord. And, I, and I'm praying for that. But um, the sermon in our day can't, can't possibly speak to all of your issues. And so that's why we want you to get in gospel communities. We want to do life together. There's so much more. Uh, uh, there's, there's help for addiction. There's help for all these things. We want to do life together. But uh, I, I would just say from the Apostle Paul's example here, uh, the, the best thing you can do for your problems is to take your eyes off your problems and say, how can I serve and find your joy rise in that? He's joyful. He says he's joyful because of your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Um, a couple years, not almost a couple years ago, I'm 41. On my 40th birthday, we were still living in Europe, and my wife put together a big plan to celebrate uh, my birthday. And the, the big pinnacle was to go to, from our home in the Czech Republic, to Florence, Italy. And so we flew there, and when we landed, uh, she told me, well, I've got another present for you. I've gone to uh, your sister and your dad and uh, stepdad and your grandparents, and we've gathered some money. See, in Florence, you can, you can go and you can do a test drive of a Ferrari. Like, that's pretty cool, right? Like, go to Italy and test drive a Ferrari. I'm like, oh, awesome. So uh, that's what we're going to do. She's like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We got we to gotta schedule you get 30 minutes of a test drive, okay? Um, we just got to go up, walk up to the, the piazza overlooking uh, Florence, and it's like my favorite city in the world, so that's cool. And, and uh, we go there, and it's the California Tea um, uh, um, Oh, I went the wrong way. Sorry. The California T Ferrari. They have two on there. One's a two-seater. One's a, a four-seater. And you, we chose the four-seater, so it's kind of not really a four-seater, but just a name only. But Jennifer is cramped in the back there. And so, uh, of course, they don't let you just take it out, come back in 30 minutes. They got this guy with you. They're like, this is a $275,000 car. Uh, I'll be with you. And so uh, you get in the car, and uh, I'm sitting in there, the custom stitched leather seats. I'm looking at the Ferrari. I'm driving. And, and uh, sure enough, we, uh, then he gives us a little briefing. You can't really see, but uh, you would see the kind of the Italian countryside and not really a countryside, it's still city. And so you go out and, and I mean, when you, from the moment you turn it on, I mean, the Ferrari just makes a unique sound and, and it's a cool sound. And so uh, you pull out and, and you're going and you're kind of going along the hills and uh, that, that was cool. And I'm like, this is, this is cool. Jennifer's videoing it and we go into the town a little bit, go around a thing. And, um, and the whole time I'm going like 25, 30 miles per hour. And you're like, this, I could tell this is really cool, but I'm going 30 miles per hour. And so we stopped at a light at one point, and I looked down, and I'm like, hey, that button says launch. <laughs> what do we do if I push that button? No, 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 you can't push that button, sir. I'm like, but it says launch. I'm like, no, that, that's not for you to push. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I'm driving, and I'm like, you know, you do it because you're like, it's a cool experience, and you tell a story. I drove a Ferrari in Italy, but the more you drive the Ferrari in traffic, the more you're frustrated. There's part of me that's like, I need to be grateful for this. This is a gift. And the other part of me is like, this is not what this car was made for. It was not made for stop-and-go traffic. 
This car, everything about this car screams power. I've got power, speed, uh, agility. That's what this car was created for. So it's cool to sit in the car and it's cool to go 15, 20 miles per hour, but this car is begging like a, a, a caged lion to say, let me go. The engine, 575 horsepower engine, and you're just, when, when it turns on, you, you could hear it. Like when it turns on, it sounds like a tiger, right? And you're like, You're like, that's pretty good, yeah. But, okay, you rev it up a little bit. This is literally from Ferrari's website, by the way, so. Uh, I never heard that noise. I knew that that's what it was created for. And because it wasn't living out its purpose, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't experiencing what it was created for. Power, speed, dynamicness, whatever the word is. Dynamos would be the, the Greek word. Uh, so, uh, and, and you pull back in, you're like, that's really cool. And my wife's like, wasn't that awesome? That was awesome. I'm like, it was awesome. Thank you. And I'm just thinking, that's not what it was created for. I got the experience, checked the box, but it's made for the racetrack. The year before, Jennifer got us for Father's Day in our town in Czech Republic. We have a, a legit MotoGP racetrack, and there was a, a Ferrari circuit. So those vehicles, they were, it was all the same vehicle racing, and we came and we saw, man, this is awesome. And you're like, Dad, that's what it's created for. Jesus died, buried by the power of God, rose again, and over 40 days, he appeared to over 500 people, and he showed them. But the last day, he came and gathered his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But in Acts, he says, um, wait here, uh, you will receive what? Power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you will be my witnesses right here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The operative word of the church in the book of Acts was power. It was more like a Ferrari than a minivan. But we're here driving minivans. I don't want to drive a minivan. I, I owned a minivan. I get it. They're comfortable. Like, you're not, I mean, it's, I've got the French fries on the floor and the, the mini cup holders, and it holds a lot of people, and we can get some places. It's comfortable. Maybe you got the, the drop-down DVD, and you can just sit back, relax, and be entertained. Get in your minivan and go. But, but Jesus says the church was not created. It's not designed. Its purpose was not minivan. Your purpose is more like a Ferrari than a minivan. You were created for power, not comfort. And so um, our joy gets tied to our, how we are created. My point in this, this message as we look at this is that one of the, reason, one of the ways we will ex experience exploding joy is by acting more like Ferraris than minivans. And that means we've got to unleash the power for the purpose and the mission God has called us to. 
And, and that is tied to your individual joy, you doing, fulfilling the purpose God created you for individually. But even more than that, it gets magnified and multiplied when we together unleash power. God designed his church for a purpose, to have power, to make his name known to the ends of the earth. When we pursue that, we will find joy. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, I, I remember you with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, that word partnership is the word koinonia. We'll get to that in just a minute. Eric Liddell, the famous missionary from, well, he's, he was a missionary in China, but before that, he was famous for being an Olympic athlete, a runner uh, from Britain. You might have seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Well, Eric Liddell, he he had this one quote. He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And and what he was saying was, uh, when I am doing the thing that God uniquely created me to do, then I experience pleasure. And that's true individually, and that's true corporately. As a church, when we run together, that's when we will experience God's pleasure, God's joy. And so he says, I feel this joy because, that word in verse 5 is very important. It's not just because we should have joy and, and slap a smile on it. He's like, because he's thinking about all the things God did in and through them and together your partnership in the gospel, your koinonia in the gospel. Uh, some of you know, you've been in church circles long enough to know koinonia. Uh, we had koinonia groups. That means fellowship. And so we've so uh, stripped that word of all of its power and meaning. We think koinonia is like, hey, uh, if we hang out a little bit and drink coffee afterwards, that's fellowship. If I do that with non-Christians, that's not fellowship. But if I do that with Christians, that's koinonia. I'm like, no, that's not koinonia. That's not what it means. We've broken down koinonia to potlucks and and meals. Now, don't get me wrong. A meal is very important. That's why we share a meal at every one of our gospel communities. Something dynamic happens in that presence. But that's not all that koinonia is. The word comes from the business world. It comes from, uh, I'm going to enter into a contract. You're going to be the contractor. I'm going to be the architect. He's going to be the landowner. And together we will sign this contract and everyone do their part. And then uh, the koinonia will fulfill its purpose and the goal will be met. So there's better examples in the world of koinonia. Let me show you just a few of them. Koinonia. I guess this isn't really in the world, but... uh, Lord of the Rings. What is is the first book called? The Fellowship of the Ring. Could be the Koinonia of the Rings. When you begin to understand that, now you're starting to understand Koinonia. So uh, I'm reading this book currently to my daughters. The Fellowship of the Rings. The Koinonia of the Rings. And and what has happened here? You've got dwarves and elves and men and hobbits and this eclectic group who wouldn't necessarily be friends otherwise, might be enemies, now have a common purpose. And each one has to play their role for the goal and the mission to be accomplished. That is a better picture of Koinonia than our potlucks. Koinonia. So that's a Koinonia. Now every... um, the military is koinonia. I, I worked with the military for 10 years and um, just 
got to see. I thought, first time I went to work with the military, I thought everyone just had guns and that's how we accomplished the mission. Oh, no, no, no. That's a very, very tiny part of, of the military. It's all the support. It's everyone playing their role so that the mission is accomplished. In this case, the koinonia of the military. And so there's, there's uh, the koinonia of the Marines and the Army and the Air Force and, uh, and, and the Navy and the Coast Guard, and all of them have to play their role so that the mission of our safety and our freedom is secured. It's a koinonia. So when you understand that, you understand the word of what Paul is getting at a little bit more. Every sports team is a koinonia. When they gather for training camp, They'll say, okay, they'll, get, they'll, they'll make the speeches. They'll get, they'll get into each other's eyes. Uh, the captain will, will gather the huddle, and, and he'll get, you know, if you ever see Drew Brees do it, I mean, he gets pumped up in it, right? Like, but his role is to pump him up. But he's like, everyone play your part so that the mission is accomplished. And, and if you have a good sports team, which I think we do here in Denver, uh, the goal is uh, championships. If you don't get the championship, why do we exist as a team? That's what we're going to go for. And everyone's got to play their role and you do your thing. That's what we'll say. Do your thing so that the mission is accomplished. And at the end of the day, we will be the ones that raise the trophy. It's a koinonia. Some are better than others. Uh, similarly, as every sports team, every, every pit team is a koinonia. The racer might get the glory, but the, the racer doesn't win without every single one of those guys doing their job well. Think about it. That guy down here, oh wait, I got a little thing. So this guy who, who does, uh, his job is when it comes in to put on the right front tire. I don't know if he's just like, you know, I'm tired today, guys. Like, what are you talking about? Get the tire on. We don't win unless every person here does their job and does it well. And when they do their job and they do it well and they win the race, you know what happens? They all explode with joy. Because when the koinonia fulfills its purpose, joy is the natural outcome. Sometimes the koinonia is huge. Sometimes it's a national koinonia made up of multitudes of millions of sub-koinonias, fellowships. This happened in our nation in 1961. John F. Kennedy, before Congress on May 1961, America was perceived as losing the space race with the Soviet Union. And Kennedy saw that this is not just a, a, an issue of national morale. This is an issue of national security. This is an issue where every American needs to get behind. And so in his Boston accent, he addressed Congress. He said, this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out <laughs> of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. That's what he said. When he said that in 1961, we were so far away from that capability. It sounded crazy to some. But I love the vision that he's casting. As the leader of the free world, this mattered to America, but it mattered to all of our allies as well. He says, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to land a man on the moon. And, and a qualifier to that, we're going to return him safely to earth. So it's not enough to get him there. We've got to bring him back safely to earth. And, and he began to cast vision to the nation. Um, some uh, oil company in Texas donated a bunch of their land through Rice University. And next year, as they began to build on that and the Koinonia began to expand, uh, 
Kennedy would go on and make perhaps his most famous speech about this. He says this, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade, and I love this, and do other things. (laughs) Okay. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I love that. We're not doing this because it's easy, but because it's hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is, is one that we are willing to accept. One we are unwilling to postpone. And one we intend to win. He was casting vision. But it's not enough just to cast vision. Like, I think in our current political climate, politicians can say stuff like this all day, but in that moment, the nation scrambled, NASA got funded, uh, exp- expansive things have engineers and, and, and millions of people literally gave themselves to the koinonia for the mission to be accomplished. It was costly, very costly. It was dangerous. In the Apollo missions and the training over the next eight years, nine men would give their lives in accidents and otherwise to accomplish the mission. But on July 20th, 1969, the mission was accomplished. Apollo 11 mission, the the lander landed and Neil Armstrong stepped out and you probably know the words that he said, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And you know what happened in that moment? What happened in the control room? You don't even need to guess. Arms went up and praise went up and joy exploded in the room and clapping went on. The mission had been accomplished and in households across America, as they saw on their television screen, hoots and hollers of joy rose up and throughout the free world, uh, joy came because they saw that the mission was accomplished. It was costly, it was dangerous, but it was worth it. And it brought extreme joy. And so when you understand that, you begin to understand this word, partnership, in the gospel. I can't, uh, I can't improve on D.A. Carson's definition in terms of Christian koinonia. He says this, the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Christian fellowship, koinonia, then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. He goes on, says, there may be overtones of warmth and intimacy, but the heart of the matter is this shared vision of what is of transcendent importance, a vision that calls forth our commitment. So when Paul gives thanks with joy because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel or fellowship in the gospel, he is thanking God for the fact that these brothers and sisters in Christ, from the moment of their conversion, from the first day until now, Paul writes, rolled up their sleeves and got involved in the advance of the gospel. They continued their witness in Philippi. They persevered in their prayers for Paul. They sent money to support his ministry, all testifying to their shared vision of the importance and priority of the gospel. The gospel. So we are a kind of a koinonia. But we're a new koinonia. About three months old. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi after 10 years. 
And this week I've been working in, I was thinking, man, uh, the Lord has blessed me. I was able to pastor a church in Okinawa for 10 years and just going through the stories of God's work and grace and, and evidences of grace. And, and I found myself praying for them and I found myself having joy in my heart and, and just thanking God for that. But then I thought, but we're just at the beginning of this thing here at Redemption Parker. And so the question for you and for me is, what's our moon landing? And if we're not shooting for the moon, why are we even gathering? If we're not fulfilling the purpose for which God has called his church, we're wasting our time. There are country clubs that ha- could give us much better buck for our bang. Bang for our buck. <laughs> Every local expression of the church is a koinonia. We're going to share some meals together, but those meals are going to be profound works of God's grace in our lives. Every gospel community at Redemption Parker is a koinonia. It's a gather for us to grow, to, to, to help one another out, to seek whole, healing and wholeness, all for the purpose that the mission would go forward, that the love of Christ would enter into our neighborhoods and into our city and across our nation and to the ends of the world. We need each other. Christianity, koinonia is not a spectator sport. It's good for us to gather on Sundays, but this cannot be the sole sum total of our Christian experience together. So I ask the question, what's our moon landing? And I just want us to think about that. For us to land on the moon in this decade as a church, it will require every person giving their lives to the mission. It's going to be costly. It could be dangerous but it would be supremely valuable and our joy is tied to it. So what is our confidence? Paul says the reason he has joy is as he looks back in their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, but his confidence is this, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. His confidence is in God's sovereign power and working through the church. Oftentimes when, when you have, see that verse, you might have that verse memorized, we apply it as individuals. And, and that's good. God word, God's word addresses us as individuals, so we can be confident in Christ because he's at work in us. But, but the text here is, again, we don't have this in English. We don't have a plural form of you unless you're from the South, y'all. Uh, the text is plural. Y'all, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in y'all or if you're from New York, use guys. He's going to do it. And Paul is, again, he's remembering back. He's like, man, I remember that day Lydia gave her life to Christ. I remember after the the earthquake and and our chains came off and, and the Roman jailer was about to take his life and we called out and he said, what must I do to be saved? He got saved. That's clearly a work of God and it continued and and he continued to see them grow and, and love Jesus and serve and the church at Philippi grew and more and more were added to the Lord uh, daily and year, monthly and yearly. And so Paul says, because of all these evidences of grace, I am confident of this. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. This is about God. So Paul will write to the church at Corinth and he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, these ordinary, fragile vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So God wants to do that through Redemption Parker to demonstrate his love and his power through ordinary vessels like you and me. 
We have to believe that every person here that's going to call Redemption Parker in some sense their home has to believe that. There's no insignificant roles so that our children matter for the mission to be accomplished. Hannah, you have to uh, fulfill what God has called you to do so that we can land on the moon. Amy, you have to uh, say, God wants to use my life for the mission to be accomplished and my joy is tied to it. But not just my joy, Kelly's joy and Alex's joy and Steve's joy and Paul's joy and Jennifer's joy is tied to Amy fulfilling her mission. And the same is true of you. Our joy is magnified. We're not individuals. We've got to cast off that American ideal and say, we're in this together. Everyone plays your role. Oh, you put on the front tire of the the car? Good. If you don't do that, we lose the race. So do your job and do it well. But know what your job is and do it well. That means every one of us needs to commit our hands, our hearts, and our knees. Our hands, our hearts, and our knees. It's going to be costly. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be supremely valuable. It can't be the status quo. It can't be we just listen to sermons and and sing songs at a screen. (laughs) Because our joy is at stake. Our joy is at stake. And that matters to God. We exist to glorify God and the joy of all people, bringing that to all people. Our joy is tied to one another. Our hands, our hearts, and our knees, our hands. God has has equipped and and gifted each one of you to serve for the cause of the koinonia. And some of that is special giftings, and we want to use that. Others that is like, I don't know what my my gift is, but uh, use these hands, Lord, for the mission to be accomplished. So we ask you to figure out where your hands can get involved, our hearts. We need, to, we need to be, Paul is full, his heart is fully invested in this church. We need to be fully invested in this church. And, and so that means uh, we, we, we give our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure. For us to get to the moon, or, and I'll tell you what that means in just a moment, it's going to be costly. Some of you, your gifting is going to be like, hey, God has blessed my business, and I'm going to make millions of dollars for the cause of the mission. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my life to business so that I can play my part well for the mission. And others are going to be like, I'm called to to, to be a pastor. And and so we want to equip you and train you to go. And others are going to say, I'm called to to serve the littlest image bearers in our community and uh, do that on Sunday mornings. And I'm called to bring coffee because there's something that happens over uh, a chatting to each other with another image bearer, another immortal person that God created. And everyone matters. So we need your hands, your hearts. We need your knees. We got to pray. Like we cannot ask God to do anything and say, well, just bless what we're doing, God. So we need to pray, God, would you do only that which you could do so that in 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, clearly God was at work there because none of us have that much mojo going on. None of us are that smart. None of us are that talented, but God can do amazing things through ordinary vessels. So we need a hands, hearts, and knees. Our joy is tied together. What's our moon landing? Well, at, at Redemption Parker, we'll go faster and farther as we also link arms with other koinonias. Here's one I want to dream about. 
this last week, um, um, Brad and I were privileged with the opportunity to go to Reno, Nevada, which is like a poor man's Vegas, um, and uh, go to an Acts 29 church planners conference. It's a bunch of just raising up church planners, casting the vision. And uh, as we, we got to spend a lot of time just thinking and dreaming, okay, what, what's a God-sized task? What's something we clearly cannot do on our own, but it is of God's heart and purpose and passions? What will we be at 10 years from now? And, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, there are, there, are, there are tens of thousands of people that will not darken a door of a church in this city. 80% of the people will, will not um, even go to church. Not, they're not affiliated. Not that they won't go to church. They, they, they'll, on the census, say, I have no affiliation to any religion whatsoever. So first and foremost, I'm praying 10 years from now, we'll be able to look back and say thousands of people in this city came to know Jesus, were baptized, and found their joy in Christ. Thousands of people. Thousands. Now, that's going to that's gonna have to start with one. And that's going to be on each of us, saying, God, would you you use me to reach my friend, my neighbor, my coworker, my family member to be the first one? So I want to see thousands. I want us to grow not to make much of ourselves because, um, honestly, we're not trying to build our kingdom, but I want us to grow because we're going to need more people with more gifts and more passions for that mission to be accomplished. And it matters to God. Even if we grew into what they would call a megachurch, you know there's still about 7 billion people on the planet that will never come to our church. So we, we, will ne- we should never have a big head. There's, there's, the mission needs to go forward. But I want to grow because I want people to buy into the vision to reach their neighbors, to saturate this city with the gospel. That's the first thing. Secondly, we want to see five other churches planted across the city, gospel-centered, church-planting churches across the city. Just like we're doing here within 10 years, I want to look back and say, look at this church and this church and this church. They're healthy. They're gospel-centered. They were multiplied. Uh, I want us to go forward in the years to come and, and send half of you away to plant another church and grow again and send half of you away again and do that five times over. Now, as, as Brad and I are talking about the vision, like, I'm like, hey, yeah, I'm like John F. Kennedy, and we'll do it in this decade. And Brad is an engineer, and he's like, wow, that, that, there's like 15 million steps to get there. I'm like, yeah, that's for them to figure out. I'm just the preacher. I tell them, this is what we're going to do. But honestly, seriously, like, that might be my, my job to say, hey, in this decade, we're going to land on the moon, but it's your job to say, here's the step I could take. Here's my role in the mission. And every person has to play their role in the mission if we're going to plant five churches. More than that, I want to see us partner with and plant five churches internationally. Um, and so there's mechanisms in place for us to do that. We're, we're looking to partner with Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Uh, since we're in Colorado, uh, that, that means that our focus is on Europe. Um, and because that's Acts 29 West's focus. That happens to be our focus individually as well since we work with pioneers as missionaries to oversee Europe. Uh, but we're going to try to identify five churches or church planners in Europe to come alongside, to pray for, to give our money to. It's going to be very expensive, but that's okay. We, we, don't, we don't have to wonder where the money's coming from. 
I, I don't wonder where the money's coming from. I know, I know God will provide it because he's already put it in your bank accounts. Like, we're not going to be like, hey, oh, we're just wondering where God's going to send the money. We have the money. Like, that's the unique position God has put us at in Parker, Colorado, of all places in 2017. But we're going to say our money is for the mission for the koinonia to go forward. So we're going to plant five churches locally. We're going to plant five churches uh, internationally. And they're going to be churches that are themselves planting churches. And so we're going to partner with other organizations. That's why we partner. We link arms with Compassion International because we can go faster and further when we come alongside an organization like that to, to help alleviate poor and, and poverty and plant churches across the world. We're going to partner with other ministries. We're going to partner with, um, for even example, Paul, you do the Hope House. And we want to link with each other because we, we can go farther, faster together than we can on our own, both as individuals or otherwise. I'm going to show you just a short video about Acts 29, uh, and, and hopefully you'll see why we're so excited about this partnership. Uh, but we're also going to roll out, um, we realize that we can't just say it, we've got to have a plan. So we're developing a leadership lab plan to, to help equip you and encourage you to do some cohorts together. There's some educational pieces that we can partner with Acts 29 and do that so that uh, you can be equipped for the cause of the mission. It's our training camp, if you will. Let me show the video and then I'll come back and uh, close us and we'll do um, communion together.